Hey everyone, I'm your host, Katie Friesen, and I'm very excited to kick off the first podcast on this mini-series on microeconomics with Bob Hacker. Bob Hacker is currently the co-founder and director of Startup FIU, which focuses on fostering innovation and entrepreneurship across Florida International University. His current focus is in commercializing faculty research in emerging technologies. He supports faculty to arrange direct investment, corporate research partnerships, and grant funding. Prior to Startup FIU, he built a billion-dollar company in Indonesia, served as CFO at One Laptop Per Child, and taught social entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan. Currently, he is faculty at the FIU Honors College, teaching about the Fourth Industrial Revolution and mental frameworks. In the years that I've known Bob, it's very rare that he wastes words. There's so much rich content in what he says, um, and you leave after a conversation with Bob thinking about something for the next week. So I really enjoyed this conversation. This is our first podcast in our microeconomics mini-series. The next following five podcasts, we're going to take a deeper dive into, quote, Mr. Hacker, the five geniuses that you've never heard of. Um, So I hope you enjoy this first podcast. I know I really enjoyed it. And stay tuned for the next podcasts. Hi, Katie. Hey, Mr. Hacker. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. So for starters, Mr. Hacker, how would you define economics? Well, I don't particularly like the classic definition. I I think it's more useful to think about economics in terms of optimizing return for a given risk. So the traditional risk-return relationship to produce purposeful results, that's the way I see economics. Um, what, what are the factors that go into optimizing those results? Well, for, for sure, you know, in the traditional context, it was labor, land, natural resources, and, and capital. In, in the modern era, say since 2000, um, the model for wealth creation has shifted and today it is based on information and capital as opposed to land and labor. Um, what caused that, that shift in model? Well, the, the, you know, if you go all the way back to Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, what he was really trying to do was to put, it, put us on notice that the economic model was changing from mercantilism to industrialization. And, you know, in the late 1700s, we see the emergence of the first industrial revolution built around steam. And that, that logic proved true the notion of industrialization and early manufacturing and land and labor development proved true until about 1960 when the computer was introduced and then you know in the in the 80s the internet started to get some traction and google came out in the 90s and we focused on network connectivity 
And today, if you look at the 10 most valuable companies on any stock exchange, usually somewhere between eight and nine of them are information-based companies like a Google or an Apple or a, or a Salesforce. And it was the, it was the change in the wealth model that permitted the Googles and the Apples to um, excel because they captured the new model of capital and information. And tying that back to your definition, can, can you repeat your, your definition again? Yeah, I basically said you're optimizing resources purposefully on a basis on a basis consistent with the risk. And then just the resources shifted from the capital land to the information. Yeah, if, if you thought of them in terms of inputs, right, the inputs changed. The process, call it the economic process, in many ways didn't advance nearly as much as the technologies. And then the outputs... The outputs were the same in terms of, you know, capital realized, but the scale was totally in another dimension. What, what intrinsically were the same about the inputs of land capital and information? Does that question make sense? Like what, what was the same about it? In terms of inputs, no, what, what, I, inputs? What, what I said was that the that the process. So you have the inputs, you have the process, you have the outputs. All right. So the process, the sort of free market capitalism, was the process that it did not change too much, except perhaps the role of the network took on increased importance. But other than that, I would probably say that capitalism as a model hasn't changed too much. And so what's the difference, would you say, between economics and capitalism? Like, what's your definition of, of capitalism? So economics is the science of policy making and decision making so policy making is macro and decision making is micro and capitalism is one form of of policy making and i think i'm going to leave it there all right so if you contrast it with with socialism that's a, a centrally controlled approach to economic policy where the individual inputs are limited if non-existent compared with capitalism where you have it largely being driven by the individual provided that we don't constrain the economy too badly with policy decisions. So to understand correctly, what you're saying is with socialism, the inputs are limited by the central power or whoever's 
authorizing. And then in capitalism, the individuals are driving the inputs. That's the distinction you're making. I, I probably would have said it's, it's a function of inputs and outputs. So in capitalism, the, the entrepreneurs, the, the, the capitalists are organizing the inputs, putting them through a process, and then they have the right to decide how to deal with, with the outputs the capitalists do. Whereas in socialism, the, the policy makers are controlling inputs and again, deciding how to distribute the outputs. Hmm. So if, if you would, let's say, take it in terms of information, right? right? And you see the central, like the government controlling the, the flow of information as an input. Um, I'm not sure if there's a question to it. It's just an interesting thought if you think about it. Well, I think that, I think the point is, is actually a very interesting point because, you know, as the, as wealth creation becomes more and more a function of capital and, and information, the, the, th- economic study of information theory becomes, I think, more and more interesting and more and more important. And when you think about information theory, you know, one of the first concepts that's easy to grasp is this notion of of asymmetry of information. Some people have the information, some people don't. Well, in a lot of cases, it's the government that actually creates the asymmetry, maybe not by intent, but in terms of outcome, by the way they share information and the assumptions they make about who should have information. Hmm. Can you maybe frame that a different way? Like how, how, give an example of how the government creates asymmetry of information, intentionally or unintentionally? Well, for example, There are survey results that show that 60 to 70% of the people that live in disadvantaged neighborhoods don't know that banks lend money. Okay. Yes, we, we could, you know, attribute that to the banks themselves and let's call it poor marketing. But I think that the, the importance of capital would suggest that when we think about solving social problems, you know, you, you would hope that the government might realize that asymmetry and take some measures to address it. Because if you give the disadvantaged neighborhood residents access to capital, you give them, you know, as powerful a tool as you could have provided them after you take care of, you know, food, water, and shelter, and minimal Medicare, medical care. If, if you were the, the government, how would you go about doing that? Just focus on the education system, or what would be your way of, of alleviating the asymmetry of information? Well, I, I do think that focusing on the education system and in many ways, making it a priority to address asymmetry would be a key part of my 
my thinking, my program. Hmm. I think that I would also raise the level of awareness around information theory and asymmetry. Um, it's such a powerful modern theory. We should be teaching it in junior high school. So by the time you got to a university, you know, you'd have a fairly sophisticated understanding of it, maybe, you know, comparable to the way that we could read, mm -hmm. right? We learned to read yeah. in what, first grade? Well, I don't know if information theory would start in first grade, but it could start, it could start a lot earlier. In Hacker Nation school, it's, it's starting first grade, eh? <laughs> Well, we might start with zeros and ones as a gentle introduction. So I guess on that note, too, when I had kind of proposed the idea of, of doing the microeconomics trading, you said the five geniuses you've never heard of that contributed greatly to, to microeconomics. Um, Cloud Shannon, right, being the one who contributed information theory. That is um, correct. Herbert Simon, Thomas Kuhn, Brian Arthur, and Eleanor Ostrom. Out of those five and their contributions, um, which which would you rank the highest in terms of the greatest contribution to microeconomics? I, I think today you would probably have to say Herbert Simon who won a Nobel Prize in economics for the concept of bounded rationality, which essentially was early application of information theory to economics. And the reason I say today you would have to say that is that Brian Arthur, for all intents and purposes, invented complexity economics which is the sort of the coming together of complexity science and economics. And I think that over the next 50 years, we're going to see that that's a really powerful uh, body of thought, complexity economics. Um, on the same hand, you know, Eleanor Ostrom's work around the tragedy of the commons and community resources for which she did win a Nobel Prize. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in economics. I think that if, if I'm right and the power of the federal government is going to be reduced and the power of city government is going to increase, I think that Eleanor Ostrom's thinking could potentially have a very big influence on how cities manage uh, this new, let's call it this new power that they're going to have. Hmm. So some of these concepts are more applicable based on the scale. I, I, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I'm if, if instead we instead we said instead of scale, if we said impact, I would agree. 
because Brian Arthur's impact and Eleanor Ostrom's impact could be very, very big. I mean, Brian Arthur could basically redefine how we think about economics. And Eleanor Ostrom might give us an economics concept that reconciles self-interest and community or self-interest and sharing. Those are both pretty big statements to make. Herbert Simon, um, the bounded rationality. I know we'll kind of do it, maybe a deeper dive into it as well. But what about that was so kind of revolutionary um, for microeconomics? Why is that concept so impactful? Well, I think in, in my opinion, it was, it was the, it was the fact that he, he, he reframed things to make us realize that maximizing was not, was not actually possible. That the best you can do is optimizing because you only have limited information. You would have to have complete information, which is impossible to know you'd reached a maximum. So it's fair to say, I guess, yeah, the people with the most information have the best chances or bet of, of maximizing. Is that a fair assumption? Well, you could, you could say it that way, but you would be denying what, what Simon proposed, right? Which is that there is no maximum. It's not realistic to, to go for the maximum. Is, is Herbert Simon's concept or theory, um, is that applied currently in, in capitalism or socialism in any form? I think that if you, if you were to look at the marginal cost to acquire new information and compare it to the marginal benefit that might be received from using the information, I think that you would, you'd be embracing or accepting what Herbert Simon said. If you, I'm not sure that I, that I understand that. There's a cost to get information. There's a cost to get the next unit of information, right? That next unit has a marginal cost to acquire it. Mm -hmm. That marginal cost should be offset by the marginal value that you can produce incrementally having acquired this new information. So if the marginal value is, is greater than the marginal cost, you would do it. But I think that at some point, what Herbert Simon is telling us is that um, first you have diminishing returns and then you, you have no returns because you can't constantly maximize. Uh, I see. Oh, so that's, that's what the, the famous marginal curve. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. But you see, that's why I, that's why I like microeconomics because 
you know, the physicists taught us that we can go from the micro to the macro, right? With all of these, you know, very, very small particles that when put together, create larger and larger structures. Well, I think that microeconomics gives the economists the same kind of a toolkit, maybe not with as much mathematical rigor as physics, but the approach is definitely similar. And that's why I like microeconomics. Chris, um, Chris from our um, Liquid Carrot, he said that in economics, there are only a few things that matter in his mind. And he said that was resources, production, agents, incentives, and scenarios. Um, I was curious on your thoughts on that. Um, my immediate reaction is to add capital. Hmm. All right. I guess that could be grouped in, in resources. Yeah, it could, but it's... I think it's such an integral part that it almost warrants, you know, its own, its own recognition. Um, I mean, especially when you get to macroeconomic policy, a lot of it is about money supply, which is just a confusing way to talk about capital, which is just a confusing way to talk about money. How would you, if you were kind of to, to create a new category, not macroeconomics? Actually, let me take it back. First, what, how would you define um, macroeconomics in comparative to micro? Right. I would say that macroeconomics is policy making, right. you know, a country level or, you know, a large geographic area. And micro, micro is a, a, a system for decision-making by empowered individuals. Empowered meaning very close to free. Do you believe in macroeconomics in terms of their theories? and Because and, I've heard a lot of discussion out there that it's pretty much useless to study macro and that you should just have a fundamental understanding of micro. Well, I, I would, on the one hand, agree that the utility of micro, you know, shows up in your life every day. Um, I think that most people that don't like macro don't like the idea of government policy. Okay. But if you ask the 16 or 17 million people that were unemployed last week, what they think about the government's program to provide unemployment insurance at, at increased levels, I think they probably all feel pretty good about it. I suspect there's nobody that's not going to take the money for philosophical reasons. Um, so the, the, the issue is that macro, when it's used well, let's call it constructively, has huge impact. And it's almost always through money supply adjustment, right? Either expand or contract. So if you give unemployment, you're expanding the economy through the money supply. Um, 
the the problem is that the rest of the tools in the government policy toolkit are not nearly as effective and don't produce the same scale of impact as money supply adjustment. So I think that's what the and, issue is. Um, and is that Keynesian? What's the difference between Keynesian economics and, and Austrian economics? Um, if we look at the difference between Keynes and Hayek or Austrian economics, um, you know, the philosophical change that launched um, the sort of Keynesian economics as the tool for the U.S. government during World War II and thereafter, the philosophical change was the way Roosevelt interpreted the Constitution was if it wasn't prohibited in the Constitution, it could be done. Before Roosevelt, the way the Constitution was read is if it wasn't permitted in the Constitution, it wasn't allowed. So, you know, that complete change of philosophy was the change that gave the government the ability to exert so much more control in so many more areas over how the economy worked. The Austrians, on the other hand, believed that the individual, the empowered individual, making his own decisions for his own self-interest, combined with other individuals of similar like, would produce better economic results for both the individual and for the greater whole. And that the government basically needed to stay out of the way of the individuals and the individuals would produce, you know, GDP growth and, and greater prosperity. With, with the Austrians, why, and this comes back down to the interference of the government contributes to an asymmetry of information or why, why would the, the intervention of the government well the austrians the austrians were sort of organizing themselves into a philosophical theory in the time period uh, marked by lenin and hitler okay and what Hayek in particular realized was what, that this approach, which was going to be a very strong form of centrally controlled government, was antithetical to the system he thought that individuals did best in. Okay, so it wasn't asymmetry so much as almost, you know, an adverse reaction to a political group because of their mm, style of managing the economy amongst many other poor choices. And which, which theory do you agree with more, the Austrians or the Keynesians? I'm a, 
I'm a full-fledged Austrian. So, a- Mr. Hacker, if if you were uh, president president of America, <laughs> or you were writing up the policies, what would your political system, what would your government look like? Okay. I I want to achieve the greatest number of empowered individuals. In order to do that, I believe in in four concepts. All right. One is we need to nurture the self-esteem of the individual. Secondly, we have to educate the individual or conversely provide an opportunity for the individual to learn. Thirdly, I believe in social inclusion. Everybody has a chance. No one is omitted from an opportunity. And lastly, if we put those first three things together, then we address the asymmetry of information by providing information and the individual will be able to make good decisions and manage his economic well-being. The, the two shortcomings, well, maybe the three shortcomings in, in the current model are, you know, one is the asymmetry of information. Two is I think that still many, many opportunities are not permitted for everyone. So social inclusion, discrimination is still an issue. And, and, and thirdly, and most challenging is the whole issue of self-esteem. An awful lot of people have grown up in very tough situations where we need to develop a greater attention to the issue and and more sophisticated resources so that these people can essentially, you know, with that program, pick themselves up and, and become empowered. Yeah, I think if... Uh... If I could have one superpower, I think it would be, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but a really intact self-esteem. I think that people with with self-esteem and a non-victim mindset can can do almost anything. Yeah, that's that's a really nice way of saying what I was trying to say by self-esteem. Yeah. Um, How I know this is a little swaying from. economics but how would you go about kind of teaching or reinforcing uh self-esteem how do you develop that well one thing that i always say is whether i teach at mit or i teach in a high school in miami i treat everybody the same i don't assume that somebody can't understand what i'm talking about I talk the same and, you know, there's always 10% of the people in the room that get 100% of what I say. And then there's another, you know, 40 or 50% that maybe get 60% of what I say. And I'm, I'm satisfied with that because I've, I've, I've given 50% of the people in the room every chance to, you know, capture something of value and make use of it. Um, I I think that there's a good opportunity in this century 
that we're going to develop a greater understanding of neuroscience and that artificial intelligence, what people, um, you know, are calling digital health for therapeutic purposes could be quite significant so that, you know, if you're, if your father is beating on your mother, maybe your watch will tell you to go to your room and read a book and hopefully you won't be as, as badly damaged as you might've been. So, you know, I think taking advantage of technology, I think it has an opportunity, you know, both in neuroscience and in digital health to, to foster, you know, stronger individuals with more self-esteem. It's, it's a hard issue. I don't have a fully formed theory. Maybe by next week. <laughs> a couple, couple more meetings of uh, Hacker Nation. <laughs> right. Um, taking it back to, to microeconomics, um, you had said when you were describing between mic- micro and macro is you said something about the utility we see every day in micro. Um, can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, the, 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 the idea is that if, if micro is decision-making processes or approach, then every day you can use it to make decisions and to evaluate those decisions. Economics teaches us we use utility, utility theory the perception of value. And that's where I see us um, using microeconomics every, every day in the application of utility to evaluate decisions. So if you're kind of looking at a decision, Mr. Hacker, you would kind of look at the inputs um, and then what the, the outputs are and kind of, the utility that you received from the outputs given the inputs? Is that kind of a fair way of thinking about it? Yeah, maybe with some consideration of risk, but yes. Hmm. (laughs) I can just, every decision, I I see it going through a hacker's mind, the inputs, the outputs, what's the utility and the risk. Well, that's, Um, that's why I teach mental frameworks, Katie, right? I want you guys, my students, if you will, to become so comfortable with the frameworks that they become system two, I'm sorry, system one approaches as opposed to system two. So Kahneman, who won a a Nobel Prize, said that system one is instinctive and that's your low energy consumption decision-making. And system two is the intensely analytical, which requires a lot of energy, which is why most of us don't think analytically. But if you can make the analytical process so integrated into yourself that it becomes another default like intuition, then you get the benefits of the analytical process for the energy of a system one approach. And that's where I'm trying to get you guys to first learn the framework, then internalize it and make it system one. 
it's like uh, practicing, right? You just keep practicing the framework until it eventually just becomes automatic. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. To... Someday, someday you have to tell me if it's easier to spike a volleyball or <laughs> easier to internalize framework. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, follow back up with that one. <laughs> I don't know if we have a framework to make that decision, Katie, but you know. <laughs> two, two questions um, or follow-ups. Can you give an, uh, an example in your, when you were, building the billion dollar business in Indonesia. Can you give an example of using micro as a fame framework in a decision you made um, in that context? Well, you, everybody that you bring on this podcast probably could give you the exact same answer, Katie, which is you, you use opportunity cost frequently to make better decisions. Right. So opportunity cost is saying, if I do this, the cost of it is actually not, you know, the dollars to buy the resources. The cost of it is the opportunity I forego, the opportunity I can't pursue. All right. So every time you built a new store in Indonesia, you were foregoing the application of that capital to an alternative location. So if you were if you were really diligent, you know, you would have 20 sites that you could build on and have made the decision you're only going to open 10 stores this year. And, and in that scenario, you would rigorously use opportunity cost. Hacker, did you ever make a decision and then look back on the decision like what was your do you my question is do you have a process of understanding whether your decision making process is improving does that make sense it yeah that's that 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 might be one of the better questions you've asked me katie in in the last three or four years um I do try to keep track of the quality of my decisions. And I try to understand for every decision, you know, could I have made a better decision or, you know, was this a bad decision? I think that what I've learned in the last three or four years is the more often I can apply a framework, a mental model, to a problem or a decision, the more likely I'm going to be pleased with the decision when I go back and review it. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And how do you review the decision? Like what, what do you say is a good decision and a bad decision? Um, it's, it might be true for you. But for me, it's actually almost always a case of intuition as opposed to rational processing. So I look at the decision, I, you know, I, I check my gut. If my gut didn't like it, I look into why, why I, I didn't make a good decision. If I look at it and I like it, 
I try to figure out what I did right to produce it. Hmm. That's uh, really interesting because my my natural instinct was to think that you would be governed more by your rational side rather than your um, intuitive side, just from knowing you. But that that was my initial gut. Yeah. So I find that interesting. Well, I think that if 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 I substituted the word intuition and used the word insight, okay, would then it be more consistent for you? In other words, I made a decision. Now look for the insight to be drawn from that decision. It could be positive, it could be negative, the decision. Could be positive, could be negative the way you approached it. But I'm trying to find the insight in the in the experience that I can extract and 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 analyze as to whether or not I did use a good framework, I just got a bad result. Or you know, it was the wrong framework. I should have used, you know, functional fixedness. Right. Or let's say you made a decision and in terms of like, if you break it down at a rational economic level, it was technically bad. But if you look at something you learned from making that decision and then you use that to apply it forward, it's almost like that insight would have been worth the economic whatever or the, the bad part of it. Yeah, that's maybe. Yeah, but you're, you're right. Yeah. So maybe we won't use the word intuition. Maybe we'll, we'll use the word insight. Um, what are the, the current gaps in our knowledge of microeconomics or if, are there any gaps in your mind? Well, I might, I might argue that integrating complexity science into economics and in particular into microeconomics is the big challenge ahead. So if you ask me, what's the gap? The gap is we, we don't have economics um, yet in the right framework. And we need a framework that recognizes, you know, self-organizing agents network together into hierarchical systems that eventually produce emergent properties. All right. And that's, that's where we're going. That's what BCG is, is introducing in their, in their writings. And, you know, now McKinsey has caught on and they're, they're talking about complexity and, and Deloitte does. And, you know, the people that are trying to make a living off of intellectual thought in the private sector, it looks like they're all they're all moving toward complexity. World Economic Forum talks about complexity. And all of these people are talking about it in the context of economic consequence, which to me says we're redefining economics. You'd say currently economics doesn't really account for the interconnectedness and interdependency. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah. And, and the one, when you frame it as well as you just did, the one thing that I would add is that economics 
does not recognize the random nature of complex systems and instead economics thinks that systems move toward equilibrium when in fact equilibrium is very rare in large part because of the random behavior of the systems. Hmm. And there's no way to predict those random behaviors. By definition, there's no way. Well, I, I think that's all the questions I have currently. That's good. <laughs> and then the next uh, podcast, we'll kind of jump into each of the geniuses separately. You know, one of the things we should do, Katie, when we talk about Herbert Simon is, you know, you asked a question somewhere, you know, what makes these five geniuses special? And that's a, that's a question, a topic that I would really like to respond to because I've been giving a huge amount of th thinking to it in the context of, you know, what makes great researchers compared with just, you know, rather modest researchers. You know, like I always say, we, you can study whatever you want as long as it's philosophy, math, or physics. And all five of these people are exceptional researchers or thinkers. And so it'd be fun to talk about that. Okay. Let's do that. This was fun, Katie. As usual, your questions were really good. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Very insightful, as, as usual. We, we try. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. You be well. Have a nice evening. Thanks. You too, Mr. Hacker. Ciao. Well, that was the first episode in the microeconomics training hacker style podcast mini series. I hope you liked it. Uh, the next episode coming out, me and Mr. Hacker will dive deep into Herbert Simon and bounded rationality. Just for some context to the listeners, Bob has been a mentor of mine since my last years of university, um, but he's also a mentor to a lot of other people. We actually have a group called Hacker Nation. And we meet every Wednesday. First, it was at Florida International University, and now it's virtually on Zoom, given COVID. Um, but we meet and we have a one and a half hour discussion with Bob, either about topics like complexity theory, mathematics, physics, mental models, frameworks of thinking. Um, these are fundamental topics that are kind of irrelevant of the changing times. It's the stuff that we just don't get in the classroom, um, or not typically. So if you're interested, you can find Hacker Nation on Instagram, um, which is at Hacker Nation. Additionally, you can find Bob on Twitter. <laughs> he occasionally tweets uh, at R-H-H-F-L-A. Um, also, you can find Startup FIU on Instagram and Twitter, which is at Startup FIU. Additionally, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Friesen 16 That's K-A-T-I-E-F-R-I-E-S-E-N-1-6. These podcasts should be posted on Apple Podcasts or directly on the Anchor app. So make sure you come check out the next episode.